So good morning. I'm Sarah Foster, and the scripture passage today comes from the New Testament book of Hebrews, as you've already heard. I'll be reading from chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. That is why the Holy Spirit says, Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. There your answers tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them, and I said, their hearts are always, their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Remember it says, Today, When you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. And who was it who rebelled against God, even though they heard his voice? Wasn't it the people Moses led out of Egypt? And who made God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it the people who sinned, whose corpses lay in the wilderness? And to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it the people who disobeyed him? So we see that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sarah. Well, we are walking through the book of Hebrews and it can be a really difficult book to deal with. And so my hope is, is that we can um, give you some keys that can help you understand some of these Old Testament narratives that the author of Hebrews keeps coming back to. He's just going to keep coming back and pulling out all these Old Testament narratives. And I hope to give you some keys so that when you read it on your own, you can know what he's talking about and go, oh, okay, he's referencing that Old Testament narrative and things like that. So um, today we hand over another key. A couple years ago in 2015, I, have a fr- I had a friend who worked for National Network of Youth Ministries And my friend called me up and he said, Bill, my friend is in town and I want you to meet him. So come have coffee with us. And so I came and I met him. And that friend of my friends was this man named Paul Fleischman. And Paul Fleischman was the president of National Network of Youth Ministries. So this was a really cool opportunity that my friend was setting up for me to kind of meet somebody who is a a bigger name in the youth ministry world. And so we sat down and we were chatting and we were having our drinks and And um, at some point, I was talking to the group about, I was in seminary at the time, and I said, I'm taking an independent study class right now of my own design that's about technology and youth ministry. And it was when I said that, that Paul perked up and he said, that is literally the topic of the conference that I'm going to be at next week. 
And I said, are you serious? And he said, yeah, I'm going to this conference. It's called the Association of Youth Ministry Educators Conference. And the topic of that conference is youth ministry and technology. And I have to present a paper there. And I, he said, you should come out. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, I should throw this together. And so I, I made it part of my independent study class. And I had some continuing end money left over that I kind of scraped together. And in a week's time, I sort of planned this trip out to San Diego to be at this conference. And I was going to be arriving to San Diego a day before the conference began. So I I sort of charted this course of how I could see the city of San Diego in this whirlwind tour in one day. And, And one of the things I wanted to see was this hidden gem of San Diego and it's known as the Mushroom House, and it's, you have to do a lot of research because it's difficult to get to, and you have to find where you have to park, and then you know, here's, here's, a, here's a picture of, of the mountain pass that you walk down. It's this dirt path, and there's lots of steps made out of boards into the side of the cliff, and, and you're getting down to the beach, and the scenery is just breathtaking. Here's me and my nerd glasses because it was a technology and youth ministry conference, so I brought those glasses along because a nerd would go to that type of conference. But the scenery is just breathtaking, and I'm making my way down this pass to the, to the beach. And so finally I get to the beach, and I'm walking along the beach, and I just took this panoramic. I mean, the scenery is just unbelievable. And I couldn't, and here's my, oh, you know, my oh, wow face. And um, there's mansions up top on the top of the cliff that are just, I mean, I don't, who lives in these things? Because the money is just exorbitant. And, and you're walking south along this beach, and I'm hoping that I'm going the right direction, and I'm checking all my research. And, and sure enough, I finally came upon the hidden gem. I had found it, the mushroom house, this crazy, cool-looking thing that was totally worth the adventure. So I have a video about it. Go ahead and show that video, you guys. Another showstopper on the sand, this strange-looking structure was built right on the beach and probably has the best oceanfront views in all of San Diego. Nicknamed the Mushroom House, it was built as a guest home in 1968 with concrete walls meant to withstand tidal waves, rock slides, and earthquakes. But even more unique is the tramway behind, running almost 300 feet up the cliff connecting to a multi-million dollar mansion above on La Jolla Shores Lane. The best way to see the Mushroom House is to walk north from Scripps Pier over rugged rocks during low tide. But do remember, while the beach is public, the house is not. So you're free to check it out, but don't even think about checking in. Yeah, it's just this really cool thing and totally worth it. I'm so excited that I got a chance to see it. I hope to bring my family there someday so they can have the adventure as well. But I talk about houses this morning, and I'm bringing up the mushroom house because our author of Hebrews is talking about houses right out of the gate in chapter 3. He's talking about houses, he's talking about Jesus, and he's talking about Moses. And you're like, where did all this come from? Like, what are you talking about? And in order to understand why he's talking about Moses and houses and Jesus, we have to understand the story behind Moses. Right out of the gate, this is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, and so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. For he was faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house. Why is the author of Hebrews talking about houses, and why is he talking about Moses? Well, in order to understand this, we have to understand the story of Moses. And everything begins with Adam and Eve being created as the first human beings, as God's reign spreaders, his sub-rulers, and his images responsible for spreading God's reign over this earth and reflecting who God is 
to all of creation. And we know they fail at that job because they disobeyed God and they brought sin into the world by trying to gain the status of God himself rather than being content with their role as sub-rulers, as images and reflectors and rain spreaders. And so now what God is going to do is he is going to partner with specific humans toward the goal of renewing his broken and sinful and fallen creation. He's not content to let the world languish in sin and death. And so he is going to select... specific humans to partner with or covenant with. This is the last two weeks. He's going to covenant with specific humans toward the goal of renewing the broken creation. And he covenants with, or he partners with this man named Abraham. And he says, I am passing on to you, Abraham, the torch that I originally gave to Adam and Eve, which was to spread my reign over this earth and to reflect who I am to all the other peoples and nations of the world. And he says, I'm going to do that by building your by building you into a family and your family's going to get so big that I'm going to make them into a nation and they're going to receive the torch of spreading my reign and reflecting who I am to all the nations of this earth. So he promises Abraham this gigantic family that he's going to build into a nation. And so Abraham has a son, Isaac, and God renews his promise with Isaac. And he has a son, Jacob, and he has a son, Joseph. And in all these men, God renews his promise and renews his partnership with all these guys. And we get to Joseph and through a certain through a certain set of circumstances, Joseph ends up in Egypt. And it just so happens that while Joseph is living and ruling in Egypt, there's a famine in Canaan where the family of Abraham lives. And so Joseph moves the family of Abraham from the land of Canaan where there's no food down to Egypt where there is food. And now the family of Abraham, this nation that God is building, is in this safe and secure spot where there is plenty of food and the proper infrastructure for them to multiply. And so Joseph moves the family down to Egypt and the book of Genesis closes with Joseph and Abraham's extended family in Egypt safe with plenty of food. Now we turn the page from the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus, and in that page turn, 400 years go by. And now we open the book of Exodus, and the people of Abraham, the family of Abraham, has multiplied so much so that they are a people group called the Hebrews living in Egypt, and the the Egyptians got wise to this multiplying group of people and said, hey, let's make them our slaves. And so the book of Exodus opens with the family of Abraham, the Hebrews, enslaved in Egypt, forced to do the labor of King Pharaoh. And to make matters worse, Pharaoh, in order to keep these Hebrews under his thumb, do you not have these, Jim? Am I? <laughs> What's that? You got it. Okay, thank you. Oh, a computer, computer. Well, it's always the computer. All right. <laughs> yeah. So we have this family living in Egypt, and they're enslaved. And in order to keep the family within his control, Pharaoh orders all of the Hebrew boys thrown into the river. And there is one Hebrew mom who, in a quiet act of defiance, throws her son into the river, but she includes a basket. And we see the, God, the, the hand of God at work in that this little boy floats in this basket, in this river, right into the arms of Pharaoh's daughter herself. And this boy is named Moses by Pharaoh's daughter. And now Moses is raised in the, in the safety and the security of the palace right under Pharaoh's nose himself. We see God's hand working. And it's when Moses grows up that God appears to Moses in this burning bush. It's this bush that's burning and it doesn't burn up. And Moses goes up to his like, what's going on here? And God speaks to Moses and he says, you're going to be my guy who is going to lead these people, my people, the Hebrews, out of slavery. I've heard their cries and I've heard their anguish and I've heard that their hurt 
being enslaved, and I'm going to lead them out, and you're going to be the guy who does that. And so I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let his people go. And Moses throws out all these excuses, and God's not having it, and finally God says, no, you go now. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And God bolsters Moses' message by sending all these plagues on Egypt. And the last plague, which is the worst plague, is that all of the Egyptian firstborn sons would die, which is God's retribution for Pharaoh killing all the Hebrew sons. And so Pharaoh, with his dead firstborn son in his arms, finally has had enough, and he says, get out of Egypt. And so Moses leads the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt through the safety or through the waters of the Red Sea into safety. And he leads them to this mountain called Sinai. And it's there at Sinai that God is going to formalize his partnership with this nation of Israel. And he is making a promise to them. And as we learned these past two weeks, he's saying to them, you're going to be my images. You're going to be my rain spreaders. And you are going to reflect who I am to all these other nations of the world. But in turn, in order to be my reflections, you have to live according to these laws. You have to live this different way that I'm giving you. So be my reflections, be my rain spreaders, be my special people. But you have to live this different way. And Israel ratifies that. And so when you hear the name of Moses, as you're reading the book of Hebrews as a Jew, well, it wasn't a book by then, it was a But if you are a Jew reading this letter that the writer of Hebrews is writing to you and you hear the name of Moses, you get all sorts of warm fuzzies inside because you remember the great leader that Moses was. You're like, that guy was a legend. He led us out of slavery in Egypt. He led us to Mount Sinai. He talked with God. He was a giant. And so when you hear the name of Moses as a Jew, you get all sorts of warm fuzzies inside because Moses is the epitome of what it means to be a Jew. When you were a Jew hearing the name of Moses, it would be like a Packer fan seeing this picture. Because this picture was taken during Super Bowl 31, right after Brett Favre threw a touchdown strike to Andre Risen. He was wide open in the end zone, and Favre saw him, and he aired it out, and Andre came down with it, and it put him ahead in the game. And when you see this picture of Brett Favre, you remember how awesome Favre was. And you get all sorts of warm fuzzies inside. And you remember how he played the game with such boyish enthusiasm. And after he threw the touchdown strike, you can't do this anymore. It's against the rules. But he pops his helmet off. And he's so excited, he runs to the sideline, brandishing his helmet in the air, ready to celebrate with the guys this touchdown strike that he's just thrown. And you remember, that guy was awesome. He just loved the game. And he would take risks. And it was so fun watching him throw into coverage. And you'd either go, yeah, awesome Favre, or no, you know, interception farm. And it was so awesome watching him, right? And he brought the Packers back from total irrelevance because they hadn't been to a Super Bowl in forever. He brought the Packers back. He was awesome. And so when you see the picture of Brett Favre, you get all these warm fuzzies inside and you say, yeah, he epitomized what it was to be a Green Bay Packer in the same way that a Jew, when they heard the name of Moses would say, he epitomized what it meant to be a Jew and what it meant to follow God. So Moses is this hero of the Jews. He is a Brett Favre of the Jews. And here's where the author of Hebrews takes it with Moses. He says, Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house, the people of Israel. He says, yeah, Moses was awesome. And he was a faithful servant who brought him to the Mount Sinai and covenanted with them and brought the law from God and brought it to the Israelites and led us to safety and led us through all these places. Moses is it. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying, he's saying, yeah, Moses was a faithful servant, but there's somebody even better. And that somebody is Jesus. And Jesus deserves even more glory and more praise than Moses does. Yeah, Moses was Brett Favre, but there's somebody even better. 
who deserves more glory. He says, and so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus, whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. Jesus deserves more glory than Moses, because Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, but Jesus is the builder of that house. He says, but Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses, just as a person who builds a house deserves more praise than the house itself. For every house has a builder, but the one who built everything is God. Trump card laid. Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, but hey, guess what? God built that house. Because the builder of everything is Jesus. And so Jesus deserves even more glory than Moses does. Back to the mushroom house. A little bit of history for you guys here. The Bell Pavilion. So that's the real name of the mushroom house. The Bell Pavilion was built and designed in 1965 by Dale Nagel for Sam Bell. And Sam Bell was the heir of Bell's potato chips and General Mills. Bell's property extended down a 300-foot cliff to an isolated beach only accessible at low tide through rugged rocks. Only surfers 100 yards away can see the mushroom shape of the guest retreat. Faced with the extraordinary challenge of developing access to the guest retreat on the beach, Bell assembled a design team to innovate. Elevator Electric Company designed and constructed the 300-foot tramway. Listen to this. Because of the unusual nature of the project, workmen walked off the job, requiring the three owners of the company to install the last 100 feet of the tramway. (laughs) I like this. Forget this. I'm sick of this. (laughs) I like that. It's too steep. The retreat's remote location was the primary reason for the mushroom shape. In that, Dale Nagel's design had to account for nature's mightiest destructive force and be capable of resisting the beating waves of the ocean. Dale's son, Eric Nagel, commented on the house saying, when asked why my dad chose to design the house the way he did, he would always answer, to resist the most destructive force in nature, teenagers. (laughs) The house is really cool. The mushroom house is really cool. But I'm a dad now, and we dads like to get into these kind of conversations that men do, you know, as they talk together. Eventually, if men were to get together to talk about this thing, they'd say, yeah, that's really cool. But eventually somebody would say, I wonder who built that thing. Yeah, and I wonder how they put those trusses up there. And yeah, you know, and now we'd be thinking about the structure, you know, the kind of conversations that men have, like dad men have. And um, we'd be talking about who built that thing as Dale Nagel. And then he contracted with this elevator company to build this tramway. Because you think about that, that is, a pretty, that is a feat of engineering to get this tram from the top cliff 300 feet down to the bottom, you know? That took a lot of work to put that together. All you engineers are like, yeah, it did, you know? And I say this because Moses is saying the builder of the house deserves more glory than the house itself. Jesus deserves more glory than Moses because Jesus built the house that Moses served in. All right, now I got one. That was the dad one. Now I got one for you women. I'm going to ask you a question. Would you rather spend an hour touring a house that was redone by Chip and Joanna Gaines, or would you rather spend an hour sitting down with Chip and Joanna Gaines in person? I'm guessing most of you would rather sit down and talk with them in person rather than seeing a house that they designed, because seeing a house that they designed would be pretty cool. But actually getting to sit down with them in person would be far, far better. The builder of the house deserves more glory than the servant in the house. Jesus deserves more glory than Moses. But Christ as the son is in charge of God's entire house. And we are God's house if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. And verse 6 is what transitions us into the second half of this chapter 3. And God says, Jesus deserves more glory because he's the builder of the house. And now he says this, 
And we are God's house. If. But there's an if statement. If what? Well, the author of Hebrews is going to continue referencing the story of Moses. You have Israel that's at Mount Sinai, and God is partnering with them and saying, you're going to be my rain spreaders and my images as long as you live this certain way. And now what God has done, too, is he set aside this land, this place for them to live, called the promised land of Canaan. Oddly enough, it's not odd, it's not odd at all. It's totally on purpose. But the land of Canaan was the land that Abraham was called to move to. And now God is going to return his people to their homeland, the land of Abraham. And so on foot, this journey from Sinai to the promised land of Canaan would take about two weeks. And so Israel sets out to Canaan, the promised land, and they're on the cusp of the promised land. They're just waiting to enter. And Moses sends in these spies and he says, go scout out the land. And when the spies come back, they have a report and they say, the land is great. It's awesome. There's tons of food. It's going to be, it's a great place to live. They said, however, we would be mad to go in there and assert any sort of authority. They said, we would be mad to try to get into that land because those people in there are giants and they are fortified and they have foreboding military power. We just are, you know, this sort of militia that we put together, these guys, and these guys would totally kick our butts if we tried to get into that land. This is what they say. They said, we can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report amongst the Israelites. So they're spreading these rumors like, hey, we can't go in. This is a bad idea. So they're sowing all this division. They said, the land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. And I like, all the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. I like this one. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought too. (laughs) If I'm Moses, I'm like, wait a minute. You were supposed to be spies undercover. So how do they think you're grasshoppers? But yeah, they thought we were grasshoppers, Moses. We can't go in there. They didn't believe. They didn't believe. They didn't believe that they could go into the land that God had prepared them. They saw the people in the land that they, in the promised land. And they said, no, it's too big. It's too hard. They're too fortified. They're too militarized. We can't do it. We can't go in. And God's not pleased. God is really not pleased. And they, the people are going to have to pay a really high price for their unbelief. And this is what happens. This is what God says. He says, you will all drop dead in this wilderness because you complained against me. Every one of you who is 20, 20 years old or older and was included in the registration will die. And so now God is saying to them, you didn't believe me. And now if you are 20 years old or older, you're going to die in the wilderness and you will never see the promised land. And now Israel has to wander the promised land for 40 years, one year for every day that the spies spent scouting the land. And every single person 20 years and older is going to die and will never get to see that promised land. If you're under 20, you're in luck. You'll get there. But if you're 20 and over, you're going to drop dead in that wilderness. And this is what the author of Hebrews has to say about this moment. Because we can look at that and kind of think, boy, it seems kind of harsh that God would do that. But this is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, so you see that because of their unbelief, They were not able to enter the promised land. They didn't believe. They couldn't go in because they didn't believe. So what do we do with this? Because I know this can be a really, uh, a passage that can really turn us off. There's a lot of wrath and a lot of anger in this passage. And you might read it and go, oh, that is better to put that away. But if we look closer, there's tons of grace. And there is a wonderful message that comes to us from this passage. So what do we do with this? I think Hebrews 6, verse 6 and verse 14 combined for this message full of grace for us. This is what he says. And we are God's house if, there's that if word, if what? If we keep our courage and remain con- excuse me, confident in our hope in Christ. 
We get to be God's people if we have confidence, hope, and courage in whom? In the builder of God's house, Jesus. And then verse 14 says this, for if, there's if again, okay, if what? We are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed. We will share in all that belongs to Christ. What do we do? It's kind of funny because we don't do anything at all. It's not something that we do. It all comes down to faith in Jesus. It's about faith in Christ. Believe. Israel didn't believe, and they couldn't go into the promised land. Now, what are you going to do? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Believe. It's about faith in Jesus. It's not what you do. It's whom you believe in. This is the most wonderful, freeing, and at the same time, maddening message of the gospel. The freeing message that it's not what we do and it's not about our merit and not what we can earn, but it's about faith and confidence and hope and belief in Jesus. But we can't earn it. (laughs) It's so maddening. There's nothing we can do to earn it. Look at all these words. If we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ, if we are faithful to the end, trusting God, having faith in Jesus, this is what it all comes down to. We can't earn this. It's so maddening because we can't do stuff that will get us into God's good favor. You just can't do it. We failed. The moment we came out of the womb, we were failed. Because we were born into a life of sin and we never even had a chance. Because we're all sinful. And so the only recourse that we have is to collapse our identity into the identity of Jesus and say, I need you. You're it. You're my savior. You're my Lord. You're my king. It's faith. I believe you. I believe you, Jesus. I believe you are who you said you are. I believe you did what you did. I believe you're a real man. I believe you're God sitting at the right hand of God. I believe. That's the only recourse we have. And I love this message because it busts down the door of a culture that is infatuated with achievement and accolades and blows up the room. We are a culture that loves accolades and loves achievement. So much so. Did you see this news story? You see this news story? So much so that there's this huge college um, entrance scam where 50 people, I just looked at the article this morning, 50 people have been indicted for bribing college entrance officials to get their kids into college. And two of the people that are named in this scandal are Lori Laughlin and Felicity Huffman. And I read today, Lori Luffman... Her daughter, she paid $500,000 just to bribe a guy to get her daughter into this college. That's how much achievement matters in our culture, that we have an actress who's willing to pay more than a college whole career costs just to get her daughter into a school so she has the accolades. And her daughter is a YouTube star, which is even funnier, because what's the whole point of YouTube? To earn clicks and earn subscribers, and drive traffic to your site, and earn status, and achieve. So you have an achieving daughter who's wrapped up in the world of YouTube achievement, getting into a school, or getting bribed into a school, so she can have the accolade and the achievement. (laughs) There's this meme that Morgan um, found (laughs) for me this week. So Lori Laughlin was an actress on Full House, the show Full House. And so DJ on Full House is brandishing this paper that has an F on it. And she says, how will I get into college? And Kimmy Gibbler says, just ask Aunt Becky. <laughs> she knows how to get in there. Lori Laughlin knows how to get him in there. <laughs> right? Zing. I love memes. I love memes. Oh, they are a gift from the Lord. Oh, I love memes. <laughs> We're a culture 
that's obsessed with achievement and accolades, and we say, you are what you accomplish. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you belong to Jesus. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Believe. Israel couldn't go into the promised land because they didn't believe. It all comes down to belief. It's not what we do, folks. We can't do anything. I was talking to someone recently, and they were saying, I want to be better. I want to be more Christ-like, which is a good thing. And it's good to want to be more Christ-like and to want to sin less and to want to be better, right? And be more Jesus-like, Jesus-y. But the sense I was getting from this person is they were sort of like pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. Like, I got to be better. I got to be better. And I'm going, you're, all you're doing is just relying on yourself all over again. And when you do that, you're destined to fail. And so in sort of this counterintuitive, paradoxical way, the only recourse we have is to collapse our identity into the identity of Christ and wrap our arms firmly around that man, Jesus, and say, I belong to you. You're mine. I believe you. I believe you. That's what it's all about. It's not achievement. It's Jesus. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Believe. Amen.